It's not just good conversation, it's your voice on the weekends. Weekends with Kenny Rahmeyer on News Radio KLBJ. How's it going? Glad to hear you. I've never called an talk show, so I'm pretty nervous. I always enjoy your show. You are so intelligent and articulate and calm. I just love listening to you. Come on, talk to me. What's going on? What's going on? Yeah, what's going on? Don't tell me what's going on. I'll tell you what's going on. And good afternoon to you. Thanks a lot for being with us on the weekends here on News Radio. KLBJ, Kenny Rawmeyer, always good to be with you on the weekends here. So this afternoon, we say thanks to our veterans. We'll start with that this afternoon. We also sadly say goodbye to an APD officer who was killed in the line of duty. This weekend, we'll have the latest on that for you here on KLBJ. Also, the latest developments for you from the Mideast and a whole lot more this afternoon. As always, your text messages and your phone calls are welcome as we go along this afternoon at 512-836-0590. We certainly want to start by saying thanks to all the veterans from all branches of the military for your service and your sacrifice. And the same thing goes to your families as well. We can never say thanks enough and definitely want to take the opportunity to do that on this weekend that is so special in so many ways, this Veterans Day weekend. President Biden paid respects to all of those who have served and continue to serve in Washington, D.C., a tribute at Arlington Cemetery yesterday at the Tomb of the Unknown. And among other things, the president said that America's veterans are the steel spine of this nation. Here's some of the other things the president had to say yesterday. Each one linked in a chain of honor that stretches back to our founding days. Each one bound by a sacred oath to support and defend. Not a place, not a person, not a president, but an idea, to defend an idea unlike any other in human history. And so some very appropriate words from the president at Arlington Cemetery yesterday. And I don't want to take away from that, so I'm going to pause for a moment and and again focus on saying thanks to the veterans. There's, There's nothing we can do to repay you for all that you've done for this country, and you continue to do. One thing I do want to mention, Operation Thank You is still underway here on News Radio KLBJ. It's our way of saying thanks to the vets as uh, we sponsor, we help sponsor Honor Flight Austin. Those uh, flights to Washington, D.C., where the veterans can tour the monuments, the war memorials. And it's been a great uh, weekend. We started at Friday, Lambs Tire and Auto, 183 and Breaker. All of our celebrities were there throughout the day taking your contributions. My understanding is we've had a great response so far, but it's not too late. So you can put the icing on the cake 
here this weekend. And it's as easy as going to newsradioklbj.com. Check out the uh, information there. Everything you need to know about Honor Flight Austin, how you can participate still in Operation Thank You. Your valuable contributions still be welcome and appreciated as we say thanks to all the veterans who have served and continue to serve. So I wanted to say that before I get back to comments from the president, as he said, our veterans are the steel spine of this nation. I only wish our commander in chief would set a similar example and have a, a steel spine as he's dealing with so many of the challenges that this country faces all around the world. More on that in just a little bit. And I can't, I can't leave the moment in Arlington Cemetery yesterday if you've not seen the video. You got to go check it out because the president needed directions from the honor guard there, the military honor guard. All the president had to do was lay the wreath at the tomb of the unknown. Instead, he was stepping back and forth. He looked confused. He looked dazed. He turned around, took several steps, walked back to the wreath. It's sad. It's very unfortunate. Such a simple act. You don't. He didn't have cue cards, right? You can't pull those out in a situation like that. It's a solemn moment. But he blew it. So I'm not going to dwell on it. It's just one of so many unfortunate incidents that we continue to see unfold with this president who is clearly not prepared to continue to perform his duties as we would like for him to, representing this great country. And yesterday's event at Arlington Cemetery was just another sad example of, of how that whole situation continues to devolve on a day-to-day -day basis. 512-836-0590 here on KLBJ. Give us a call or send us a text. Want to say thanks to all the veterans. You can still help us honor the vets and say thanks by going to newsradioklbj.com. Participate in Operation Thank You, which benefits Honor Flight Austin, taking uh, trips to Washington, D.C. to help our vets tour those monuments and, and memorials. Such a special thing that the station has done for so many years, and you have been the key part of the success when you uh, make your contributions. So we appreciate it. Still not too late to help us out on that this weekend. We come right back. As I mentioned, some very sad news regarding an APD officer. We'll have all the latest for you coming up here on KLBJ. And Kenny Rawmeyer back with you live and local on News Radio KLBJ on this Veterans Day weekend. We can never say thanks enough to all the veterans, and we'll do that right now as we have throughout the show already. Thank you so much for a debt we can never repay. A very sad story that unfolded yesterday as an Austin police officer was shot and killed in the line of duty while responding to a call in South Austin. A second officer was injured 
Two other victims were found inside the residence with fatal injuries. They were pronounced dead on the scene, according to APD. It's reported that multiple APD officers fired their weapons in this incident, and the Austin Police Interim Chief Robin Henderson has identified the deceased officer as Senior Police Officer Jorge Pastore, survived by his wife, two stepsons, parents, and two sisters. Our thoughts, our prayers are with that officer's family and all of APD. Very sad situation that unfolded very early yesterday morning. APD said it responded to a call or a stabbing around 2.49 a.m. APD's uh, interim chief, Robin Henderson, at a news conference yesterday, gives us all the details of how this situation unfolded. We are in the early stages of the investigation and the details are subject to change. 49 a.m. 911 communications received a call requesting help at that same location where a caller was screaming for help. The caller provided more details and said somebody was stabbing her. At approximately 2.57 a.m., the first officers arrived on scene wearing Austin Police Department uniforms and responding in a patrol capacity to a shooting, stabbing hotshot call. The officers began to gather additional information, including the suspect's location. Officers were also notified that there were two other people injured inside the residence with the suspect. Prior to officers' arrival, a third victim of the suspect was able to escape from the residence and was located by officers in Austin-Travis County EMS in the neighborhood. She said the suspect still had a knife and she was subsequently transported um, at 3.03 a.m. by Travis County EMS to a local hospital for the injury she had sustained. Based on that information provided to the officers, at approximately 3 a.m., officers made emergency forced entry into the residence to rescue the two victims. Before officers made entry, they announced themselves and identified themselves as Austin police officers. At 3.01 a.m., as the officers entered, they were fired upon by the suspect. The officers then backed out of the residence and did not return fire at that time. At 3.06 a.m., because the suspect was armed and barricaded inside a residence and had two hostages, SWAT was called out to the scene. At approximately 4.11 a.m., officers, SWAT officers arrived on, on scene and forced entry into the residence a second time to rescue the victims. As SWAT officers entered, the suspect immediately fired his gun at the officers and the officers, the SWAT officers returned fire. At approximately 4.15 a.m., during the exchange of gunfire, information was provided over the radio that two officers were shot. The two officers were transported to a local area hospital by Austin Travis County EMS. The suspect on scene succumbed to his injuries and was pronounced deceased. Despite the tremendous efforts of our officers, our EMS TAC medics, our Austin Fire Department, and the staff at the local hospital, one of our officers succumbed to his injuries. The second officer is in stable condition. Two apparent victims of the suspect were located inside of the residence with fatal injuries and were pronounced deceased on scene. This officer-involved shooting was captured on body-worn camera. Multiple APD officers discharged their department-approved firearms. The officers will not be identified at this time. 
APD will conduct two concurrent investigations into this incident. A criminal investigation conducted by the APD Special Investigations Unit in conjunction with the Travis County District Attorney's Office and an administrative investigation conducted by the APD Internal Affairs Unit with oversight from the Austin, from the Office of Police Oversight. I'd like to thank Travis County TAC Medics and Travis County EMS, our officers on scene, Austin Fire, and the medical staff that treated our officers and worked so hard to save our officers' life. It's very much appreciated. I'd also like to highlight the incredible bravery displayed by our officers day in and day out. That's Austin Police Interim Chief Robin Henderson at a press conference yesterday afternoon giving us all the details, the timeline of what happened as a senior police officer Jorge Pastore from APD was shot and killed. One other officer was struck by gunfire and as uh, she said, it's in stable condition. The investigations are ongoing. Not going to try to pass judgment here or do anything more than just express the sadness of a tragic situation that unfolded early yesterday morning. I do want to say, just taking a look at, at some of the information, what little information we have about all this, and, and I'm going to say it and say it again, this bit of the conversation is in no way intended to be disrespectful or to criticize the response time of APD. As you heard the interim police chief there talking about it, a uh, call came in around 2.49, I believe, said first officers responded around 2.57. Uh, KI, in one of their reports about this, they said the officers arrived less than 10 minutes after the initial call. All right, so we'll accept that time frame and that timeline. And I just got to wonder if any of the defunders of APD, any of the activists that had a hand in, in influencing the city council to, to take millions of dollars away from APD in years past, are you going to step forward and take any ownership of a difficult situation here where is it plausible, is it possible that officers could have responded sooner and could that have made a difference in the outcome of this whole situation had the APD not been defunded and and had APD been adequately staffed not just in this part of town but all around the city on any given day when this kind of stuff can happen. Just doing a little bit of, of research here, a report from KVU dated July 3rd of, of this year, so not that long ago. And of course, this is when DPS troopers and the partnership with the city of Austin, right, didn't last very long. It upset a lot of people. Nevertheless, DPS troopers came in and, and helped APD and, and made a difference. You remember some of the reports. And, and this report from KVU says, yeah, police response times changed during that first deployment of the Texas DPS troopers. 
Mayor Kirk Watson said that reducing APD response times was one of the, quote, core goals, end quote, of that partnership with DPS, and it worked. And so in the report by KVU, there were some examples given, one in District 10, which covers Northwest Austin. Average response times between April 2nd and May 13th, 9 minutes, 32 seconds in that district. That's down from the 11 minutes and 6-second average between March of 2022 and March of 2023. Difference of 94 seconds. Now, granted, this is some information that's several months old, and it's when DPS was a factor here. I'm just trying to give a little context, a little background to what I'm talking about. Another example given in this KVU report, with the exception of District 8, which covers Southwest Austin, every district saw a reduction in response times of at least 30 seconds when DPS was helping APD earlier this year. Now, the crime scene was just around the Westgate Boulevard area, right? That's in the Southwest Austin area, right? Where District 8 didn't see a reduction of response times even when DPS was helping. So the point is, APD is stretched. Their resources are stretched thin. We know from from what we've read and certainly from interviews with uh, members of the Austin Police Association, anecdotal conversations I've had with APD officers, they're stretched thin on any given day, on any given shift, they're shorthanded. That plays into the difficulty in, in improving on the response times, right? And being there at a critical moment when the call comes in. A little more research from CBS Austin going back to late May of 2021 which is about a year after the Austin City Council and, and the activists and all the defunder crowd took $150 million some dollars from APD. This report from CBS Austin, late May of 2021, shows that uh, Austin police 911 response times increased 30% for urgent calls since last year. So from the time that the city council first defunded the police approximately a year later response times increased 30 some percent for urgent calls the goal according to this report for apd is around six minutes the long-standing goal for emergency response times And so this data in this report, a year after the defunding, shows the average response time for hotshot calls like shootings, stabbings, that are just over nine minutes, a 30% increase from 2020. And through the best efforts of our police force and all the officers doing their level best and then some, they got there in about the same time frame, nine plus minutes or so. My point, my question is, two questions really. Had APD not been defunded, is there a chance that these response times could have been better 
had there been adequate staffing levels on any given shift, on any given day, and maybe even yesterday morning. Don't know what the shifts were. Don't know what the staff levels were. Just speculating that they weren't as good as they could have been because that's pretty much how it rolls on any given day around here based on what I've heard with APD. Not the fault of the officers. It's the fault of those who thought they had a better idea how to reimagine law enforcement here. And so, there's my second question. Will those defunders, will the activists who had a hand in defunding APD, are we going to hear from them? It's a... A holiday weekend, I understand that, Veterans Day weekend, but maybe Monday morning, are they going to step forward and own what they've done? Are they going to own the defunding that has made it less safe? Don't know if any of this would have produced a different outcome in the sad, tragic events of early yesterday morning, but it leaves us wondering, could it have been better? Thanks to the defunder crowd, and, and the activists and all those behind all this nonsense, we may never know. But I wonder, they were so quick to step forward and take credit for defunding the police. Or are they quick to step forward and own the unintended consequences that we're left with here? Quick news break. Stay with us here on KLBJ. And Kenny Rommeyer back with you live and local on News Radio KLBJ on this Sunday afternoon in mid-November. It's Veterans Day weekend, and we say thanks to all those vets and their families for their service and their sacrifice. We can never say it enough. Always welcome to join us here on KLBJ, 512-836-0590. Give us a call or send us a text if you want to join the discussion of any comments about uh, what we talked about just before the news break, the sad, tragic story of a deceased APD officer killed in the line of duty, as well as of honoring Veterans Day here on KLBJ. I, I mentioned at the top of the show, we'd also give you the latest developments from the Mideast. I think one of the things that, that we heard this morning on the Sunday TV talk shows that, that got the most attention, not a lot of details, but the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, was on NBC's Meet the Press And he said there, quote, could be, end quote, a potential hostage deal with Hamas. But he didn't give any further details. He said it would potentially thwart the delicate negotiations that are ongoing. The National Security Advisor for the Biden administration, Jake Sullivan, was on ABC's This Week program. He said the United States remains committed to, quote, ongoing negotiations, end quote, for the release of those hostages. Said officials are still working to find nine Americans still missing. And there were a couple of members of Congress, of Republican and a Democrat, who actually met with the Israeli prime minister, about the hostage situation. One of those was a Democrat congressman from Florida, Jared Moskowitz, who had this to say about the hostage negotiations uh, as he was meeting with the Israeli prime minister. 
they're working on several plans to locate the hostages. I don't want to go into details of that. Uh, but obviously that is a top priority. There are nine Americans missing uh, that are potentially hostage. And so, you know, this was a focus of the delegation. And a Republican congressman who, who covers some part of our listening area here in Texas, Congressman Michael McCall, was also on one of the Sunday TV talk shows today. And he talked about, I believe it was CBS's Phase of the Nation, I believe, and he talked about of some of the hostage situation and, and what's going on with that. Here's McCall. Very dicey issue. And I think what uh, Hamas wants uh, would be a, a swap of prisoners in uh, Israel, of uh, Palestinians in exchange for uh, these hostages, uh, uh, both Americans and Palestinians in, in the Gaza. Axios is reporting that behind the scenes, the Israeli and U.S. officials are saying one of the ideas being discussed is a deal to release about 80 women and children who were kidnapped by Hamas in that October 7th attack. And in return, Israel would release Palestinian women and teenagers who are being held in Israeli prisons. That's from Axios, and, and one of the developments around all this is Brett McGurk, who is President Biden's senior Middle East advisor. This guy worked, uh, I believe, for the George W. Bush administration, carried over to the Obama administration, and now is part of the Biden administration, presumably has some extensive ties and experience in the Mideast, he's the senior Mideast advisor for President Biden, and he's expected to travel to Israel and several other countries in that region this coming week to discuss the war in Gaza and the ongoing efforts to secure the release of the hostages. That's all we know about that situation at this point. We'll continue to bring you any, any new developments on that as they become available to us. A couple of the other headlines that we're following for you out of the Mideast, U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria have now been attacked at least 48 times since mid-October. These assaults evenly split between those two countries, 24 attacks in Iraq, 24 in Syria, all involving explosive drones and rockets. This according to a defense official in thehill.com today. At least 56 troops have been injured in the attacks. Most minor injuries. Pentagon says every service member has since returned to duty. And we know that the president has authorized two or three strikes on facilities that the Pentagon says are used by Iran and all of the uh, proxy groups that it supports. But the so-called self-defense airstrikes have not appeared to deter any of this activity, right? The, uh, the attacks just keep on coming. American troops targeted at least six times by fighters in Iraq and Syria since the last U.S. hit. By the way, 3,400 some American troops based in Iraq and Syria are there to try to prevent the reemergence of ISIS in that area.
couple of, of I thought, good op-ed pieces in the Wall Street Journal this weekend. One of those about these U.S. responses or lack thereof to these attacks by the Iranian proxies. This quote from the Wall Street Journal, the U.S. military strikes in response aren't making Tehran think twice about hitting American troops. Central fact is the Iranian proxies are now routinely trying to kill American service members abroad. The U.S. is responding by shooting at ammunition dumps. The Biden administration has been touting its addition of air defenses to the region, and a submarine is, is in the neighborhood, right, as well as the carrier groups. But what's the point of the military assets if America's enemies are not concerned that the United States is going to use those assets? Wall Street Journal piece concludes that Iran's mullahs are testing President Biden and his commitment to restoring an eroded American deterrence. And that de deterrence and the erosion thereof on President Biden's watch, right? Do you agree with that? 512-836-0590 here on KLBJ. Another op-ed piece, which just is kind of uh, unfortunately... Just another sad chapter of this whole story about how much money the Biden administration has given to Iran. Quoting here from this Wall Street Journal piece, Iran exported nearly one and a half million barrels of oil per day last month. It's about its average for all of this year. That's up 80% from 775,000 barrels a day that Iran averaged under the Trump administration. The Iranian surge in oil exports since President Biden took over has brought Iran an additional between $32 billion and $35 billion. And even with all that money, has it moderated Iran's behavior in any way? No. The Wall Street Journal piece says it just finances Iran's aggression with groups like Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthis in Yemen, and all the other front groups in Iraq and Syria that are shooting at American bases almost daily. A few years ago, State Department assessed that Iran sends $100 million a year to Palestinian terrorist groups, arming and training them to attack Israel and murder their citizens. Last year, Hamas leader said his group received $70 million from Iran plus long-range rockets. Reuters reports that Iran's funding for Hamas is up close to $350 million in the past year. And then, of course, there's China. About 70% of Iran's oil exports go to China. Therein lies two-thirds of the challenge of the Axis, Russia, China, and Iran. We're talking about China and Iran at this point, although Russia is certainly in on a lot of the oil deals going on as well. So, the Wall Street Journal reports, Iran receives the money and diplomatic cover it needs to advance its war on the United States and Israel. Russia supports Syria 
And Wall Street Journal reports the potential for nuclear cooperation here amongst these countries should keep Western policymakers up at night. I don't know if anything keeps President Biden up at night. Wall Street Journal piece concludes, does the presidents have the will to break from his strategy of appeasement? The answer to that is no. At least not what we've seen so far. As our American forces continue uh, to be the targets of the bad guys. And I, for those of us who were around during the Jimmy Carter days, I got to admit I wasn't paying a whole lot of attention back then. Wasn't that old? But I do have a similar sense of, I think it was called malaise back then, but it's it's kind of a similar feeling that we have going on right now, at least for me. Today, just like back then, the United States just appears to be a punching bag for the rest of the world, certainly our adversaries, and we seemingly are just not doing anything about it. That's just the sense that I have Maybe you think differently, or maybe you agree. 512-836-0590 here on KLBJ. More to come. Stay with us. And Kenny Rommeyer back with you. Thanks for being with us on the weekends here on News Radio KLBJ, live and local for you this afternoon. Well, what do you know? One of those ideas from the liberal West Coast that hadn't exactly panned out very well. I think some of us saw this coming. I think I even commented on it when it was happening when when the likes of uh, the state of Oregon were trying to decriminalize mushrooms and, and, and those kind of drugs. So this out of the Wall Street Journal today, Oregon has become the first state to decriminalize all drugs. We know that, but that was nearly three years ago. It was a grand experiment, right? And those advocating for it at the time thought, boy, this is going to be a a nationwide relaxation of all the drug laws. But now many in Oregon have turned against the decriminalization initiative. It passed with 58% support a few years ago. But now people sprawled on the sidewalks using fentanyl with no fear of consequence. It's a common sight now in cities like Eugene, Oregon, Portland, Oregon. Business owners, local leaders are upset. And so are even some of the liberal voters who voted for all this nonsense, thinking that it would lead more people to get help. In reality, according to the Wall Street Journal, few drug users are taking advantage of the new state-funded rehab programs. So now... Coalition of city officials, police chiefs, district attorneys are calling on the state legislature to recriminalize the hard drugs. Recent poll found that the majority of Oregonians support the idea. This one example, some 6,000 tickets have been issued for drug possession since decriminalization went into effect in 2021, but just 92 people have called and completed assessments needed to connect them to services. And if you don't do that, the only penalty for those who don't call, a $100 fine. 
And so the number of fatal overdoses in Oregon, according to the journal, during the 12 months that ended in May, up 23% from the same period a year earlier. 1,500 some. Oregon was the first state, as I mentioned, to decriminalize a lot of these drugs. Also, the first state to decriminalize possession of weed back in 1973. And they hoped the same, quote, pioneering approach, end quote, to hard drugs in 2020 would, would produce similar results. Not so much, right? Latest on the homeless situation. You heard about this? Out of the, um, well, it's in Anchorage, Alaska is where it is. Four homeless people have died in Anchorage just in the last week underscoring the city's ongoing struggle to house a large homeless population just as the cold winter weather sets in. I'm bringing this to your attention because we've got cities like Chicago and New York City, same situation. Now, maybe not the harsh winter weather that Anchorage, Alaska has experienced so far, but we know the city of Chicago, the city of New York City, they're setting up tent cities to try to house the homeless, what do they think is going to happen in January and February when the frigid temperatures really move in? Well, what's going to be their answer when people are dying in these their so-called insulated tents, right? Yeah, well, you can only do so much when it's so cold, right? So stay tuned. This is uh, just a precursor of, of, I think, what we're likely to see in some of the contiguous states and some of the big cities that have been sanctuary cities now have a lot of homeless people, and what are they going to do with them? Meantime, on the immigration front, the story out of El Paso this weekend. El Paso, for all these months, with the influx of, of the illegal migrants, they've been trying to have as little involvement as possible in caring for these people who come and go every day. Local nonprofits, of course, called on to try to help with all this. Now local officials say they've been forced to change course because the sheer number of migrants released on the streets there at near record levels for most of the year, and many of them are poor parents and children, few resources, they don't have enough existing shelters, enough capacity. People are sleeping on the streets. So now El Paso is having to uh, figure out, I guess we're going to have to spend about $4 million to buy a decommissioned middle school and turn it into an emergency shelter. And other border cities like San Diego and others have said the number of migrants released on their streets, crisis levels, pleading for the Biden administration for some assistance. Of course, it's not forthcoming. And now they're all stuck in the same boat of what are they going to do as winter sets in? They're looking for more permanent solutions. Of course, it all takes money, right? All courtesy of, of the U.S. taxpayer. Just like this story out of the Chicago Tribune, as so many of the migrants have been bused to a lot of these cities up north, Chicago and others. How about this, South Chicago Tribune? A lot of these migrants in this story, a lot of them from Venezuela, they're leaving Chicago. 
looking for warmer weather, more resources, or to try to connect with family and friends. So they started out looking for the American dream in the sanctuary cities. It's not happening. And the migrants themselves are realizing the cities are at a breaking point. There's no space in the shelters. They acknowledge a lot of the residents in these cities, like Chicago, they want to open up more shelters for them. So they're choosing to leave, but even as that's happening, many more are still arriving every week. It's just a revolving door for taxpayers. It's a, it's a migrant musical chairs that you, the taxpayer, are paying for courtesy of the misguided immigration efforts of the Biden administration. I'm not going to have a lot of time to get to this. I've, I was speculating last week, wondering whether the abortion issue and all the Palestinian protests and all that, we've been seeing them all around the country, all around the world, uh, here in Austin this weekend, over in London, tens of thousands over in London. The abortion issue remains the most potent political issue. I think we saw evidence of that in the elections just this past week. I was wondering if it's on par one to the other. I don't think so. You take a look at the results from these elections. Republican Party, they don't know what to do about it, don't know how to talk about it. Some think it's messaging. Some think they got the right message. We just need different tactics and that to get the message out. I don't know. The Republicans are scrambling on this front. No clear strategy about how to talk about it, how to deal with it. And it appears the Democrats leaning heavily on this and and it appears going to continue to uh, try to leverage that in upcoming elections, maybe trying to make it the central issue, although the Biden camp's trying to make the economy the issue, at least in the $25 million in ads that they spent so far. I don't see how that's going to go anywhere. Many predicting a recession. Uh, delinquent loans are on the increase for car loans, credit cards, and all the rest. So, tough situation there. Out of time for this weekend. Thanks a lot for being with us. Thanks to Garrett, our producer. Latest in news coming up next on KLBJ.